You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. Now, I know there's no use dwelling on it, but it still sits heavy on me that I didn't ask him more questions, that I didn't spend more time with him at the end. But I think I'm ready to talk about it now. I'll piece together what I can recall and what Dad told me and what he told Mrs. Caldwell at the home, and I'll try and fill in the gaps. If you'd asked me a year ago, I might have said no, but enough water's flowed since then. And anyway, what good's a story untold? All right. Now, I think you've heard some of my dad Leo's story before, so stop me if I should take a shortcut. But I think I'll start at the beginning, with the chirp of an eighth octave C, the rightmost and highest of the 88 keys. When my father was just a toddler, he'd tilt his head at the piano in his parents' living room, a bit like a puppy seeing his reflection in a mirror. It wasn't anything special, a Baldwin upright, oak, not maintained at all, not tuned. When my grandma Sarah opened the cover to play it, it was like she bared the teeth of a neglected mouth. All the keys had yellowed and some of them had chipped. But my father looked past all that, and the sound of his mother playing Debussy in the evenings would pacify him like nothing else. The arabesques would stop his tears and the preludes would close his eyes. But whatever spell the piano cast on, Leo had no effect on his father. He'd wed a pianist, but this was nothing he took pride in. Never something he mentioned to his friends. And when he and my grandmother grew older together, you know how sometimes it is with another person when small fractures become fault lines. Well, eventually, he didn't bother hiding how much the sound of the piano grated on him. When he found his wife playing it, he'd make excuses. Demands, actually. Posing as excuses. Some days it was a headache. A heavy head, he'd moan. Other times he couldn't hear the radio news over the music two rooms away, behind closed doors. In time, he'd give no reason at all. In time, a souring marriage couldn't explain him. Maybe the grueling shifts at the Don Valley Brickworks got to him. Maybe it was the misophonia, the sound rage he'd gotten after falling off a slope in the clay quarry there and cracking his skull. Maybe it was the person he'd always been, but more and more often he'd come home late, smelling of whiskey, and find my grandmother playing, and before even taking his work boots off, he'd charge the piano and slam its cover. Go to bed, he'd say. Go to bed. Once, he slammed the cover before my grandmother could move her hands off the keys and broke three of her fingers on her right hand. They didn't heal quite right, and she never played after that. But still, my grandmother couldn't ignore the understanding between her son and the piano, and she wouldn't let her husband take that away. When Leo turned six... She hired a teacher for him, Mr. Feldman, 
an older man who accepted company as payment. In just two years, my father was playing Bach and Schubert and Chopin, and nobody could know, because then his father would know. He would only practice right after school, when his father was at work, not due to return for another three or four hours. One day, though, as these things go, his father came back early. There had been another accident at the quarry, and they sent everyone home. Leo was in the middle of an impromptu, too lost in it to hear the door open and close, to see the stock-still silhouette of his father in the hallway, begot by the weak table lamp angled at the keys. When he finished the piece, his periphery returned, and he gasped. He turned to stare at the staves in front of him, avoiding his father's red eyes, the notes now stuck to the page, unable to help. "'Was this your mother?' he growled. Silence. "'Was this your mother?' Silence. "'You should play hockey, you know, not fucking piano like a faggot.' Yeah. Yeah, he said that. I've had to look to my imagination for a few morsels of this story because I've searched everywhere else. But I haven't imagined this part. And not the next part when my grandfather tore the book of impromptus and slammed the piano's cover and with his calloused hands slapped Leo across the face with such a force that he fell off the stool and onto the parquet. The next day, the Baldwin upright was gone. And the next week, Leo was gone too. Aunt Rachel... Grandma, Sarah's sister, she lived an hour away, and her twins had just gone south to study. She agreed to care for him. It took my grandfather about a week to realize that his own son was missing, and he didn't much fight to get him back. But when he discovered that it was his wife's plan, and that she'd hatched it behind his back, well, he made it so that after that she never left the house without wearing a big cloche hat tilted to cover most of her right eye. Leo saw her like that when they met every couple of weeks in secret at the grocery store, away from his father. He would tell my grandmother what he did at school and what he was learning on piano, and he would kiss her forehead above her right eye, and they would embrace for a whole rest. What consoled Leo the most when he left his mother, and not a month after that when he learned of her death, was the second-hand piano Aunt Rachel bought for him. In the love of his new home, my father continued to play, although his repertoire gradually changed. Maybe it was the memories it was tied to. A mother, yes, but also her pain. Or maybe he felt fettered playing classical music. But he went on to play more modern things, songs likelier to bring smiles to less serious people. Ragtime, jazz, show tunes, things like that. And you always knew it was Leo playing. He had his own rhythm, his own punch that everyone was crazy about. After finishing school, he'd perform at pubs and restaurants and hotel lobbies. His audition process one of a kind. He'd lie in ambush until the hired musician left, and he'd just sit down and play before the owner came to lock up. Some owners would have none of it, and they kicked him out too to sweet. But many of them listened for a minute, and that's about all it took. They hired him right then and there, sometimes at the expense of the guy before. One evening... He's playing at the Melody Room of the Gladstone Hotel down at Parkdale. Romance on the High Seas had just come out. Maybe you haven't heard of that movie, you know. It's kind of ancient by today's standards, but I'm sure you've heard of its star, Doris Day. But there was a song she sang in that movie. It's magic. A big hit back in that day. And Leo plays it, and before he even gets past the introduction, there's a cheer of recognition loud enough to startle him and make him turn his head while his fingers danced. And he sees... A girl run up to the piano, 
a girl with the most striking hair, curled and flaxen, the color of straw. And she starts to sing. It took him the first two lines of the song to process all that, but come the next two, he was already hers. She slurred some of the words and forgot a line or two, but her voice made the bar go quiet on a Friday evening. Uh, yeah, you guessed it. That girl was my mother, Claire. She'd visit the Melody Room every week and sing. Uninvited, but far from unwelcome. Leo didn't mind, of course, and neither did the guests. And after her third visit there, in a sentence he garbled completely, he suggested they perform together. She said yes faster than a quaver, and Leo never played alone after that. They were a treat by themselves, but together, they were magic. If things were different, they could have been famous beyond the city. I, I think I've played you one of their tapes before. Uh, the hiss makes it harder to tell now how good they were, but believe me, they were. So, half a year after they'd met, they got married. And then I was born. I gave them some grief as a kid, getting pneumonia all the time. They stayed home often to take care of me, and to make ends meet, they took on more gigs at odder hours at places they might otherwise have avoided. One such place was the Jolly Miller Tavern. I think it's just the Miller now, up in North York, two blocks from where my grandfather lived, and the bar where my grandfather would get his whiskey breath. Claire didn't know exactly why they stayed away from it, even when a good opportunity came up, since Leo was quiet about his past. But in my parents' marriage, there were no fractures threatening to widen, no fault lines in the making, and Claire never pushed, and she understood. Anyway, they're booked for the 10 o'clock slot at the Jolly Miller, and my father murmurs to himself that his worries will fade away as soon as he starts to play, as they usually do. But today, the weight of the day won't lift, and the weight of the keys wouldn't help, and he scans the room so often as he plays that, between sets, my mother asks him what's wrong. At first, he doesn't see his father's face in the crowd, so he loosens up a little. But during the second set, in the middle of Shall We Dance, that night the crowd only wanted American in Paris, Leo notices his father's hunched-over figure at the bar, earplugs in his ears, a drink in his hands, looking to the bottom of it, or maybe through it. The lopsided smile Leo usually wore when he played, the end of his lip twitching with the twists and turns of the music, unravels. His performance becomes... Forced, the agility in his thoughts and his hands curbed by the dread of facing his father. But what troubles him most is to see his father's loveless eyes fixate not on him, but on Claire. He stares at her, seemingly without blinking, and he rubs his throat slowly, a little like how you might when your mind wanders, but somehow more deliberately than that. After realizing he's been staring too long, my father brings his eyes back toward his wife, only to catch the worry that her own gaze betrays. The next time he looks toward the bar, his father's gone, and it was just chump change in the tip jar that night. Now, what happens next it must be a coincidence. It has to be. But you wonder, to paraphrase something I've read, if that's only because we can't see the cogs and chains. The following day... Claire's voice becomes a little hoarse. She thought nothing of it at first. 
Maybe she strained herself singing the days and the nights, or maybe she caught a cold from that congested man who'd kissed her hand to thank her for a song. But the rasp lingered for a week, and then two, and then her throat became sore. Soon, her ears ached in a way that seemed to spread out from the middle of her neck. Leo insisted that she see a doctor, but my mother always shrugged it off. It'll pass, she said to him, and he didn't push. They never pushed. But when she could barely talk, and she couldn't sing at all, they finally went to the clinic. The doctor there ordered an x-ray immediately. It came back a week later. There was a lump on her voice box. Laryngeal cancer, they said. My parents tried to shield me from the severity of my mother's illness, but it was hard for me not to see. Dad could hardly hold back his tears most of the time, and Mom would have to take his hand and reassure him with the whispers she had left. And the treatment, new for the time, caused her beautiful flaxen hair to fall out. Hairless and voiceless, she died in her sleep a couple of months later. I hurt, of course. But my father broke. He cared for me with all of his love, but most days I had to care for him back to help restore some color to his face. He never remarried, you know, and he wouldn't touch the piano. When I encouraged him to love, to live, he always said that he was only half the act, and that his father would come back anyway, and then what? So he led a quiet life, sustained sustained maybe by me, maybe by the music he heard but never played, from the symphony at Massey Hall, from the radio, from the records, from those tapes with the hiss. He worked modest jobs at a department store here, at a food kiosk there, and decades passed for him like this. I had to move out when I got married, but I would continue to visit him often, to get his face working, to see a trace of that lopsided smile of his. When he got on in years, about ten years older than I am now, his hands started to shake and his movement slowed. We just brushed it off his old age until... One morning when he fell down the stairs of his apartment, it was mid-stage Parkinson's and he could no longer live alone. He moved in with us and we cared for him for a time, but then we had the kids and we had to find a home for him. Not wanting to deepen his loneliness, I, I looked for a home with a piano the guests could play. I thought that maybe my father would revisit the keys after all, that the music would give him company if he didn't find any in the other guests but the closest home with a piano was a two-hour drive away, which meant my visits would have been rarer, and anyway, there wasn't much of a point. His tremors were becoming worse, and his hearing started to go, not to mention he refused to play without Claire's nectarous voice by his side. In the end, I abandoned the search and settled on a place close to us, suggested to us by the Greenwalds, whose parents were also getting old. Leo didn't make many friends at the home, except for a nurse there, Mrs. Caldwell, who was with him until the end. It was Mrs. Caldwell who told me that my father would sit in his wheelchair in the living room most days and most nights, neither willing nor able to do much else. Long after the other guests had gone to bed, sleep didn't come very easily to him. He would rock back and forth, staring out into the could-have-been. There wasn't much to hear at those times of the night. The wheeze of an overweight guard making his round the jangle of his keys, occasionally the engine of a passing car, sometimes a raindrop against a window. But on one night, it was late in the fall, I think, a foreign sound leaked into my father's left ear. 
the one with the hearing aid. He took out the device and shook it, a habit that seemed to help, like the way you might hit an old radio to get it back to its senses. But when he put it back in, the sound didn't disappear. If anything, it became a little clearer. He could make out a repeating melody of 15 notes played on a piano, slightly off-key. He listened to it more closely, and although he was more slow in identifying the song than my mother had been during their first encounter at the Melody Room, soon enough he recognized the mellow notes of It's Magic. Immediately, my father rings the bell on his wheelchair, and Mrs. Caldwell rushes in, afraid he's in trouble, but all he asks her is, who is playing the piano? The question puzzles her, of course. She tells him that there is no piano in the home, that she can't hear it herself, that he must be imagining things. Annoyed, he takes off his hearing aid for her to try on, but she still doesn't hear a thing. So she encourages my father to try and get some sleep, and she leaves him be. Unsatisfied, Leo waits until Mrs. Caldwell is out of sight and sets out to find the source of the music. He wheels first in the direction of the courtyard, but the sound becomes fainter there, so he turns around to go the other way, towards the south wing. In that direction, the fifteen notes grow steadily louder and more clear, and he rolls past the reception, where the guard is dozing off and approaches the recreation room, but he stops and turns around, realizing he's just past a door that he's never seen before, at least not here. It was a walnut door, embossed with four panels and an arch. Nothing like the other doors at the home, yet somehow not new to him. He stops in front of it and turns his head so that his right ear faces it, and then his left. Unmistakably, the sound is coming from this room. As soon as he turns its doorknob with his trembling hands, the melody cuts out, replaced immediately by the heavy kind of quiet of a suburban nursing home in the middle of the night. He turns the doorknob slowly and pushes. It's a small room. The only thing there is an upright piano and a stool in front of it. A weak table lamp already on illuminates the keyboard. He moves toward the instrument to observe it more closely. Sliding his hand along the top board, he removes a thick layer of dust and reveals the oak beneath it. Just in front of the keys, there are dents and scratches in the wood, as if someone routinely slammed its cover. The letters above the keys read, Baldwin. Anxiety nestled in curiosity, he moves the stool aside and positions his wheelchair in front of the piano. He opens the cover and sits there for a moment, before finding the courage to strike the eighth octave C with the index finger of his right hand, the first note he's played in decades, to see if it makes a sound. With some effort, he guides his fingers through the fifteen notes that have been playing over and over in his hearing aid. As he does this, he feels his tremors subside, somehow, and so he closes his eye and he brings his left hand to the keys to join the dance, and plays. Plays as if he performed at the Gladstone Hotel just the other day, and as he finishes the introduction to its magic, a new sound enters his left ear, a nectarous sound, the sound he's been aching for, and as Claire's voice accompanies him once again, and as the tears roll down his cheeks and his lopsided smile returns, he hits the notes more loudly, more confidently, more extravagantly. And with his own rhythm, his own punch, he plays through every song they could perform together. He finishes at dawn, exhausted, and then he closes the cover, turns out the light, and wishes his wife a good night. Leo slept only a couple of hours that night. 
but it was a deeper and more restful sleep than he'd had in a long time. When he awoke, he rushed to tell the story of the room and the piano to Mrs. Caldwell. He prodded her to follow him to the south wing so she could see for herself. She did, but there was no door there now, just drywall. Privately, she was worried. She'd seen patients with Parkinson's who had hallucinated before, and this meant they didn't have much time left. But she'd never seen my father this happy, and so she kept quiet, lest the doctor give him something that would have taken away his smile. And so she played along with Leo and told him that maybe the room only shows to him, and maybe only at night. Encouraged, Dad waited that night in the living room, past lights out, and he was close to convincing himself that he'd just dreamt all of it. But the melody returned to his left ear, now more complete, more than the fifteen notes that beckoned him the day before. So he wheeled towards the recreation room, and found the walnut door again, and entered. And after playing just a few notes, once more Mom's voice came on in his hearing aid, and everything was good again. Mrs. Caldwell told me that my father did this every day for weeks. On a couple of nights she went to see for herself, but she couldn't find him where he'd said he went. But he was always in bed the following morning, she said, and smiling, and that's all she needed to know. And everyone at the home saw a different Leo. He spoke more with the other guests, he took part in the day's activities, and he seemed somehow more agile despite his condition. Another nurse asked him once why he was so upbeat, and he just told her that he'd gotten a gift from his mother. But on one night, a few weeks later, his tide began to ebb. Pianists rarely have occasion to hear the rightmost key of the piano, the eighth octave C, but my father struck it by accident that night and noticed that it made no sound. And though he could feel the weight of the hammer, the chirp it should have made when it struck the string was gone. He shrugged it off as the age of the piano, and anyway, it didn't matter much, since no song he played reached the brinks of the piano. But every following night, a new key would fail to produce the note it was entrusted with, the blight creeping from right to left along the keyboard. This troubled my father, but he didn't push. He never pushed. And soon, he had to move an octave lower to be able to play his songs, and when he did, he noticed a strange quiver enter his wife's voice in his hearing aid. It became a little quieter, a little more hoarse. He told Mrs. Caldwell, distraught, that someone had to x-ray the piano, and she said she'd see what she could do, all the time worried to be feeding into his delusion. Leo returned to the room with a new dread every day, hearing the pitch descend and his wife's voice wane and sadden again. One night, having no help, he tried to lift off the top board of the piano to see if he could repair it, but it just wouldn't give and he fell off his wheelchair trying. Mrs. Caldwell noticed the bruises and warned him to keep away from that room, but he couldn't abandon my mother, not then. Seventy-two keys later, he's down to his final octave, and the melody of its magic is reduced to an unbearable roar. Claire's voice in his hearing aid is barely real, and this time shaking it doesn't help. Afraid that the following night there will be no music at all, he wants to stay past dawn and take in what's left. But as he plays, more notes fail, until he reaches the growl of the subcontra A, the leftmost and lowest of the 88 keys. And all he can do is repeatedly depress the key, until that growl too subsides to dead air, or maybe a hiss. And so does my mother's voice, and his tremors return, 
and his smile unravels, and he pulls out his hair and stares at the sheet music rack, and on it now is a book of Schubert's impromptus, opened, except there are no notes on the staves, and he turns around to see a stock still silhouette of his father, no older than him now, rubbing his throat deliberately, work boots still on, a cup of whiskey in his left hand, and a cloche hat in his right, and in the cloche hat there are droppings of curly flaxen hair, and his father says to him, go to bed, and in a sound rage he charges the piano to slam its cover, and my father rushes out of the room as quickly as his hands can turn the wheels on his wheelchair. Panicked, he depresses the bell repeatedly for Mrs. Caldwell, hoping it won't die on him too. She comes quickly, and he tells her in a soup of words and gasps and tears what had just happened. She wheels him to his bed, and sits with him and holds his hand until he sleeps. The next day she tries to wake him, but she can't. And that's when she calls me. And so, from a chirp to a growl, that's where it ends. It's an unhappy story, and you can see why I've held off on telling it. The doctors? They said it was a psychosis brought on by Parkinson's, like Mrs. Caldwell thought. But when I last visited the nursing home, I stopped by the south wing, just short of the recreation room, and I found a lock of flaxen hair lying on the ground. Maybe my father had kept it all these years, or maybe it belonged to another patient at the home. But you can't see the cogs in the chains, so you never know. You never know. The Wrong Station is created and produced by Alexander Saxton and Anthony Botello, with music composed by Elon Zitrin. This week's episode, Cheveux d'Alon, was written by Elan Zitrin. You can tune in Sunday evenings for new episodes. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, and Player FM. You can also follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.